0: From the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, this is the Forgotten Coast podcast. An insider's look at ground zero of climate change, a chance to preserve the voices of disappearing communities, and a conversation with those working to ensure their survival. I'm your host, Kate Lyon O'Neill, and today we're in Africatown, Alabama. Welcome back to part two of this episode on Africatown. I'd recommend going back to part one if you're just tuning in. Last episode, Major Joe took us through the history of the enslaved people who founded Africatown and the community's early years. This episode will focus on the last hundred years or so of Africatown. Now, while I do think that Africatown is a forgotten coast, I am far from the first journalist to come here. In fact, Zora Neale Hurston visited in the late 1920s. When she came, Kasula, or Cujo Lewis, was believed to be the last survivor of the last slave ship, Clotilde. It turns out there were at least two other female survivors who were living at that time, but their stories are not nearly as well documented. Zora met with an 86-year-old Kasula over a period of three months, Her writings sought to preserve the sound of his dialect, as well as her observations on his mannerisms and actions. Her study, entitled Barracoon, was not published until 2018. Barracoon refers to the holding area where captured prisoners would be held and processed into the transatlantic slave trade, many of them in Dahomey, in what is now Benin. There are a few feelings as to why publication was delayed. First, and I think this needs to come out early, as the manuscript is written, she plagiarizes another study of the African community by Emma Langdon Roche. Now, whether this would have been later edited and cited is unknown. Uh, Secondly, academics today think that there was a lessened interest in books written in dialect. And while I think it's important to write things the way people say them, especially like Kasula, if their first language isn't English, at what point do you reach a level of playing into stereotype? Zora, her editors, and her publishers would all have been aware of the stereotypes of enslaved dialect, and maybe to publish an actual enslaved person's voice that did in some ways perpetuate stereotypes wasn't seen as progressing the voice of the black literary scene. Or maybe white readers were perceived as not wanting to read vernacular. Either way, Zora refused to change the way she captured Casula's voice, and without audio of it, it's not possible to say if she was accurate. There's also the issue of Hurston's white patron, Charlotte Osgood Mason. Charlotte involved herself in the literary careers of many of the most well-known voices of the Harlem Renaissance by financing works she wanted to see. She was on the tail end of America's spiritualism movement, think seances, contacting the dead, spiritual practices of of all sorts, um, and had participated in the ethnography of indigenous American practices and beliefs several decades earlier, she wanted to see the same done for African American communities. Zora's mandate was to collect and document the, quote, music, folklore, poetry, voodoo, conjure, manifestations of art, and kindred matters, end quote, of black people. Charlotte Mason got the right of refusal and publication, and even to the existence of any interviews or other subject matter that Zora unearthed. In fact, Zora found one of those other Clotilde survivors. She wrote to Langston Hughes about it, and in that letter... She said that that survivor would remain their secret. And until I understood about Charlotte Mason, I couldn't understand why she would say that. Now I think I do. She was discovering a part of Black history that this white woman would have no claim to. Keeping something for her and her community. So, for whatever reason, these writings sat unread for nearly 80 years until they were finally published. And in the meantime, the story of Kasula Lewis, one of the last enslaved people to arrive in the United States, faded into the background. Only in Africatown did this legacy remain vibrant until it didn't.
1: Well, I was born in 1950 in Africatown itself. Africatown uh, was at that time its own, what I call, contained place. In other words, you things like people used to say don't go across the tracks and this and that well that's actually what they used to tell us don't go across the tracks we had tracks uh, railroad tracks all around us pretty much when i was born we we were africa town was still its own incorporated area and it was not part of the city of mobile we had our own separate post office our postmaster with the first black postmaster in in, uh, mobile county we had a, a movie theater and uh, and several grocery stores, gas station, uh, restaurant, drive-in, and amenities like that. Things that you you have in a in a regular community. It was own. It was its own self contained area. The, even though that wasn't any official elections, we had our leaders that was sort of, you know had their own um, way of. Voting amongst themselves, and the leaders were pretty much uh, the uh, people that uh, that had businesses in the community, had a little money, and and so they would be the leaders, and they would be the one to go down and talk to people with the county and and and, and for certain things. But it, I guess, the basic thing I would say about the community had its own; it was self-contained. You know, our own separate schools and stuff like that, and. As I talk about the history of it, I'll you know, tell, tell you a little bit more about that.
0: Major Joe talked first about the Mobile County Training School, one of the first Black public schools in the South.
1: Pretty much. As a matter of fact, uh, um, on Monday, when you came back to school, you had to have a note from the parent that said that you went to church, Sunday school. So, so if you didn't have that note, the principal would send you back Principal name was Isaiah Whitney. He was the first principal at the school, uh, at the Fisher School, and he was recommended by Booger T. Washington himself out of Tuskegee. And and so, and if you didn't have that note for your parent, he would send you back home, and you would you had to come back with your parent and had to explain why he didn't go to church that night. That, that
0: remember that chip spell from the Clotilde we talked about in part one? It ended up at the school. And it became a central part of the community there.
1: And so they would ring the bell in the morning, let everybody know the school was taking in. And they rang in the evening, let them know school was about to take out. They would also, on time, the people that lived near the school, when that smoke would balloon during the day, especially on Saturday, and and they saw it, they'd run out there and ring the bell to tell the people in the community that that smoke was coming.
0: This smoke was from the International Paper Mill, which was built on the fence line of Africatown. The Mayer family owned most of the land around Africatown, and wouldn't sell it to any black residents, but they did sell out to a huge paper mill in the 1930s. Most of us don't live anywhere near paper mills anymore, but they stink. It takes a lot of chemicals and processing to turn a tree into a piece of bleached white paper.
1: From the paper mill, yeah, because you—if you had your clothes out there on the line, you had to run out there and take them in. Wow!
0: So Saturdays yeah. was the big release day usually of. Yeah, every day,
1: them. really, okay. but that was, yeah. But people washed most on Saturdays. They washed okay. the clothes on Saturday, hung them out, and uh, to dry 'cause nobody had no dryers, and so it was sunlight was drying them. That ash got on them and just messed them up. It had to rewash them. And sometimes the ash would eat through certain clothing. And late at night, if you heard that bell, that meant that. Uh, You know, you might want to come out because there might be a fire somewhere. way made to help somebody put out their house.
0: Once again, the mayors were exerting their influence on this community, which had no say in the construction of the paper mill that came to define their lives. The natural beauty of the area began to wither in the presence of industry. There was a long tradition of raising small animals, growing crops in yards, and living off the land in Africatown. Hog Bayou, what Major Joe described as their happy hunting ground, was one of the areas that was heavily affected by industry. He suggested I go out and take a look for myself. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, what a pleasant little bayou looks like there's a path to get down. Let's go check it out. Hmm oh it's nice out here right on the water definitely a good amount of infrastructure build out on it but there's lots of noise lots of bugs and here's some birds With the refinery right here, that's a shame. The residents of Africatown couldn't control the effects of industry on the natural environment. And after more than 100 years at the center of Africatown, the bell went missing.
1: But uh, um, it stayed with the school until the uh, 80s. And the school system was doing maintenance all over the county. And, and they were doing maintenance at the school. And the main, maintenance worker said, uh, look, look, the, the bell was looking old. And so he said, look, let's take the bell, and we'll sandblast the painting and bring it back. Trump said, OK. They took the bail, never brought it back. Never brought it back. So, so the Alumni Association uh, began trying to find it. And they went to the school system. school said, we don't know nothing about no bail. So they went through all the 11, looked through the warehouses and everywhere. They, they they never found the bill. So, so uh, about four or five years ago, uh the alumni president out of Atlanta, Anderson Flynn, one of one of my buddies, he said, Joe, I'm gonna reestablish the tradition of the bill He said, he said, let's uh let's go on the internet and find a bill, we'll buy it and bring it back here and, and, and install it. And that's what we did. We uh, got on the internet and found a bill right across the state line there in Mississippi. Well, off I of ten, and I uh, brought it back. We got some ma- some masons for our alumni association, and uh, they they built a a place for it out there in the courtyard. And uh, it's, it's it's been really nice seeing that bell out there, and and having to you know ring it sometime. So we we reestablished really the tradition of the bell. That that bell is sitting up in somebody's house, somebody yard. Maybe they bring it out once a year and 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 and, and ring it or something to. The Christmas celebration—I don't know. They, they can have it. I think the male family got it. I think the male family got it. You know, it's interesting. We used to play uh, a football game every Thanksgiving with that school that I told you that was the second black school. Mm-hmm. So we called it the ticket day game, and it was—it was—it was, it was an affair. It was—it was—it was just a spectacle. And the two school bands would come together and perform as one. Practiced for a whole month for that. The stadium, last stadium, would hold about 40, 40, uh, 42,000 people, and, um, and the two side stands, which hold about maybe twelve to fifteen thousand apiece, they pretty pretty much be full. So, so the north and south stand didn't have many people. But I noticed in one section there was, a, I would say, as many as two, three hundred whites that were sitting together in that in that area, and I never knew who they were. And I've always thought that that was probably the Meir family they would come out to watch them play, watch us play.
0: Africatown was culturally and politically distinct from the city of Mobile. It was its own small town, but it wasn't economically free from outside influence. Augustine Meir Jr. owned many of the rental properties in the area, and he had also been the one to lease the land to international paper. Augustine was the grandson of Timothy Muir. If you're keeping track, he's the one who made the bet. After all of this time, you know, here we are in the third generation after, the Muir family still owned much of the land in Africatown. They had sold off some right after the Civil War, but after that they exerted much tighter control on that and wouldn't sell to anybody else in Africatown trying to buy more. So there were some plots that were owned by the community, and many that were still owned by the Mears. I think the last time I could find members of the Muir family speaking to the press about their history was in a 1967 issue of The Southern Courier. I didn't know what this newspaper was before starting the podcast. The Southern Courier was an offshoot of the Harvard Crimson that covered not just civil rights and protests in the South, but also arts, history, and education. This was journalism that many major East Coast based networks weren't picking up on, much like environmental issues in the South today. The June 17th and 18th issue from 1967 that I found Augustine Mears' interview in is incredible. On the front page alone, the Supreme Court declares interracial marriage bans unconstitutional, the launch of food stamps, a march to the Capitol building in Montgomery that ended with bayonet-armed National Guardsmen stopping the protesters, and the crowd kneeling on the sidewalk. And a few pages in was a history of the Clotilda, Africa town called Plateau in the article, and the mayor's involvement in the area.
1: Yeah, I re- I remember that especially because uh, my my granddaddy was sort of part of the inner circle, and I remember him telling my, my mom that. Uh, that they were going to, you know, vote to annex and uh, we'll get water and sewer.
0: Augustine Mayer Jr. was against putting in running water and sewage in the community. His words are really ugly about it. All right. I'm looking at this interview he gives while other sections of Mobile were getting public services. Plateau was without sewers, water line and garbage pickups. After complaints from the Plateau residents, health officials began to enforce city regulations. The city paved some streets, and the federal government gave $300,000 to help pay for sewers. Last year, the city began regular garbage pickups in the area. Mayor has doubts about all these improvements. He says they cost him about $1,000 per house in tax assessments. And he thinks the improvements could cost the tenants more money than they have to spend. The water and sewerage bill could easily run as high as the rent, he said. Besides, people have lived perfectly healthy and happy for years without running water and sewers. And so, Mayer is knocking down 80 of the remaining 100 shacks and moving the rest into the country north of Plateau. The houses will be resettled near small towns like Axla and Saraland. By fall, Mayor said nearly all of the shotgun houses will be gone from Plateau. Of course, we'll probably leave a few there for the old slur. That worked for us, he said. Mayor said he doesn't charge these elderly tenants any rent, but sometimes he regrets it. The government has softened them up in their old age these days, said the wealthy landowner, sitting in his 26th floor office in the new First National Bank building. With these old age pensions, you can't get them to work as hard anymore. feature of this article was a brief conversation with Henry Williams. Like Joe Womack, Henry was a history keeper in Africatown. There was a time when people didn't want to celebrate the history, when they wanted to keep quiet. Henry, though, Henry recognized the unique heritage of his town and fought to preserve it.
1: Henry Williams was considered the grand godfather of Africatown. The only person that talked about it was Henry Williams. In a way, when I was five years old, he taught Sunday school at the church that I went to. And at least once a month, he'd talk about it. He'd talk about it. And uh, and he he my, my granddaddy was superintendent of Sunday school. And he'd want to get up and talk about it in church. And they would shut him up. But in Sunday school, uh, he'd get up and talk. And about after five minutes, people would sit, sit down, Henry. Sit down. And my dad, my granddad said, leave him alone. So I am I'm running this Sunday school. You, I tell him to sit down. He can talk. He can talk until till I'm tired. So that was his buddy. And, and so and he would talk but it but uh when it when it first went on the enslaved people they couldn't testify uh, uh against their master uh uh their owner i mean the, the slave could have could have pulled out his cell phone and, and filmed the entire thing took it to trial and the judge was at disregard that you he, he, you know he's he's a slave he can't testify against his own so 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 when it was over uh, they they the intimidation, intimidation was what kept them from talking because they were staying on the on the mayor's property. Even after they bought the property themselves, mayor's property was all around. Them. Mm-hmm. And I've been told that even at even during the 50s and 60s, uh, when it was time to vote, they would come up in the trustee meeting at some of the churches and, and try to tell them how to tell their church members how to vote. I know the property right next door to my uh, church. Is still owned by the mayor, and and they told him say if y'all people don't vote this way, I'm gonna have a warehouse right right next to your church, and, and the property right out in front of our church across the street is owned by the mayor family, but it was intimidation, and and some of them was actually ashamed a uh, years ago, and uh, and that's why they really started the school so they could educate their kids, uh, and and they really sort of taught taught the, quote, African out of themselves and out of the children.
0: When the official narrative from people in charge, people using threats entrenched in racism, is very different from the real history, it takes guts to stand up. It takes guts to say what's true. And this is what Henry Williams
1: did. Well, to me, it's one reason why this story has been around for almost 200 years nobody knew about it, not even here in Mobile. Uh, Because the war is interesting. The ones that, that did it uh, would say, this didn't happen. You know, They took us to trial, and we were innocent. And plus, wh- where's the boat? Where's the manifest? None of this stuff's available. It's just an urban legend. He was a historian. He wrote several books, about three or four books, about Africa Town, the school, and the people, and a couple more books. He, he, he was a craftsman. He, he was a welder. He built his welding shop out of out of fifty-gallon uh, drums, and uh, he he would love to talk and and uh, but he was considered a, a godfather. after he would go down to the city council and take his buddies, and they would argue against them all the time, trying to rezone stuff. And we we don't want this over here. We don't want that over there. And and uh, at one time, well. The EPA under Clinton finally pulled. Well, he, Clinton organized the EPA under under his administration, and 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 they ended up eventually forcing international paper and scots out of business because they were just polluting everything. You know, they were they would drop that ash at night and sometimes during the day, and if you had a brand new car, if you didn't wash it four or five times a week, it would, it would rust out on you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They came in the thirties. The international came in early thirties and. Scott's in the middle 40s, middle 30s, but they both had a big expansion in, in in the middle 40s. And that that's when things really grew. And that's when a lot of people came down to Mobile. My, my dad came down around 1945 or so. Uh, that's when they had that big expansion. And like I said, 1960, we became part of a city. And in and, and 1970, things sort of went, went out of control. And we had a real struggle. Henry Williams was always fighting it councilman, but we had no representative. Even in 1985, when we finally got a representative, you know, the first two or three, we didn't know what they were doing. They really, really didn't know. First one was a Baptist preacher, and I didn't even think he was a good preacher. That went on for a number of years, and and we're we're still fighting that today, really.
0: The next decades were pretty tough for Africatown. Attendance began to fall at the Mobile County Training School. Then, Cancer cases started erupting in the population. I don't think many families went untouched by that. When the paper mill closed, it was both a grace and a death touch. The air quality and the livability increased, but the biggest employer in the area had just closed shop. Africatown had been a beacon of prosperity for many people in the middle of the century, including Major Joe's dad, but by its close, the future wasn't great. 2018 is the year that everything changes again for Africatown. On January 24th, after a record low tide, reports came in of the wreckage of the Clotilda being visible. This wasn't the first time that people had seen the wreckage over the past 156 years, but for whatever reason, this caught people's attention this time. Major media like National Geographic and universities descended upon the area and financed surveys and searches. Barracoon was finally published after more than 70 years of quiet existence in the archives of Howard University. And in 2019, the Clotilda was pronounced formally rediscovered, and Africatown was back on the map.
1: So now that we're in a tourism phase in Africa, people know about Africatown, people want to come to Africatown. And we've got about five or six tourism spots, and that's our primary walking trail. Uh, for tourism, you got you got the welcome center that they are building right across from the cemetery. We got three and a half million dollars to build a welcome center from BP, and you got the cemetery. You got the church that they built right there across the street. You got you, you got the slave quarters right next to the church, and then you got the the Elks, which is the local watering hole. It's been there since in nineteen twenties. And, and, then, and then you got the only thing left from the slavery era, which is a big chimney and on the property of Peter Lee, who was the first chief, mm-hmm. right there next to the elves. And then you got a mirror of the ship. Those five or six sites are right there on the boulevard. And, and to, today we're calling this a period of uh, recognition because we've gotten recognition. They found the ship and that caused, we've been on the 60 minutes, we've been on, uh, uh, CBS Morning News and Evening News. We've been written up in the uh, New York Times and uh, National Geographic got a special issue just just for us a couple of years ago, whole magazine. And so we got our recognition. And so we, we're going through a period of renovation. We're trying to renovate all the all the houses. And so when people come in, they won't just see a bunch of old old houses tap being you know on, on on the way to being torn down. Our vision is sustainability because of tourism, because of recognition, because of who we are. You know, we, we've been told by the, the tourist professionals here in Alabama and, and throughout the world that we can be as good as, if not better, than what they've done with Montgomery and that lynching museum. That mm-hmm. lynching museum in Montgomery after the first 12 months, the city of Montgomery realized an increase in their sales tax revenue of over $1 billion in 12 months. And and they said, because we have the story, we have the the centers, we have the community, we got the school, and the people still live there today. If we do it right, we can be just as good, if not better than Williamsburg, Virginia, or Jamestown, Virginia tourism. And and so that's what we're striving for. And so, you know, we, we we've come a long way. We're still struggling to, you know, to try to uh, win over. And, and unfortunately, winning over the, the government of Mobile has been slower than anything. That's the last thing to come around, because we're having to do a lot of things ourselves and trying to get money. Of course, is big key. And and if you got the city working with you, you can get money a lot easier and a lot faster if the city signs, signs on the dotted line with you. If you're just Joe Womack nonprofit, you, you, you really may have a problem. But if you Joe Womack signing on with the city of Mobile, Mobile does this stuff all the time, then uh, you're gonna get the funds you need. Now, now after we were on 60 Minutes, um, uh, and I wrote something about this, if you go on my website, not my website, but the organization I run, Chess, mm-hmm. africatownchess.org, you'll see where uh, on 60 Minutes, they had a viewing audience of 35 million people. But uh, about a month after that, the government, the, the governor of Alabama came down and presented a check to the mayor for $35 million for tourism, and he announced that he's going to spend it on the south side of town. Now, mm-hmm. Mobile is rare up for tourism, and all, it's all because of Africatown. It's all because of africa and nothing else. I mean, year, 10, 20 years ago, they built a big museum, big, pretty, beautiful museum down on, on, the, on the waterfront, Gulf Quest, cost $65 million. They opened it one day and closed it down 10, six months later because nobody was coming. They, they, nobody knew it was there. No, nobody knew, knew it was open. And it's been struggling ever since to survive. It's open today because they got about, Ten million dollars of BP spill money to keep it open for ten years, and and uh, and and so see all of this stuff could prosper. We, Africa Town is the hook, uh, but but the thirty-five million dollars that they got from the state, they're gonna they're buying a piece of property in Brooklyn Field, closed Alpha Base on the, on the bay, and they're gonna put in a bunch. Of, well, it's gonna be some type of amusement park, something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't have no real problem with that, but. If you're gonna spend money on tourism, build up Africa Town. That's the thing that people are gonna be coming to see. Build a rep, replica of that ship somewhere in Africa Town. And so, you know, we, we got the vision. Uh, we we've actually gotten some some uh, some architecture type work done. We just need the money now. That's that's what we're struggling. We figured we're gonna need somewhere about north of hundred million dollars to do what we need to get done in the community.
0: So, besides all of those things that we've mentioned, what else would be your vision? You know, say if BP showed up with chess for a check for a hundred million dollars, <laughs> well, what would
1: well you my, my my first my first allegiance is to, to the people of the community. It really don't take a whole lot. They they just if you ride around around the community, you'll see a bunch of blue tops on these houses. My first thing would be to 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 renovate the housing. Renovate. The, see, if we renovate the housing and then we got a lot of vacant houses, I'm sorry, vacant lots, but well, vacant houses and vacant lots. We renovate the houses where the people are staying. We re- renovate the houses where no one is staying and put some people in it. We put some housing or apartments on the vacant lots. Then you got people coming into the community and we think that we can get, get it up to about at least 6,000. And you got Kids in the school, and we got people in the churches. And, and, and then that that's that that's a great beginning. And, and then of course we got these things that we, we're working on like a blue way around the community, walking trails within the community. Uh, We've we got plans for a uh Africa town village. We want Africa Town to be an African-American cultural heritage destination. For instance, when my son got married a few years ago, he and his wife both been living in Atlanta, and and she knew about Africatown, and and uh, and and so they, they came and looked around and and, and, uh, and because they wanted to get married, and they have like not not an African wedding, but just an experience around cultural history. And he, he told me he said, Dad, uh, y'all don't quite have what, what what we need, and so they ended up getting married in Savannah, Georgia, and but but. Uh, we, we, we like people, you know, instead of maybe going to uh, Las Vegas, come come to Mobile, come to Africatown, have a, have a cultural uh, uh, a wedding. And then, you know, we've got the casino 60 miles away and the beaches, you know, less than an hour away. And good food, good southern cuisine, seafood and stuff. And see, the city actually would benefit really more than the community itself financially. Because we don't have no hotels in downtown in Africa town. Mm-hmm. Right now we don't have uh, any, any restaurants. So you would have to come and live down, downtown mm-hmm. and, and eat downtown, but come out to Africa town to visit and tour and see what's there. Mm-hmm. But it's the city that will really prosper from this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's what amazing to me that they haven't gotten more on board with us and what, what we're trying to do.
0: As of right now, there's plans for an Africatown Heritage House to open up this fall. The Heritage House will include an exhibit on the Clotilda ship, the voyage, and the history and life in Africatown itself. The Heritage House is different though from the plan for the Welcome Center. This is the plot that I visited right near the cemetery. This, they've got the funding for it, and it's just a matter of getting it built. But with Joe Womack at the helm, I don't think it'll be too much longer, until Africatown is no longer a forgotten coast, but is one of the premier cultural destinations in the South. As for the Mayor family, taking responsibility, acknowledging history, maybe paying some reparations, I'm not holding my breath. See you next time on the Forgotten Coast podcast. The Forgotten Coast podcast is a project of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy in conjunction with the Red, Black, and Green New Deal and Gulf South for a Green New Deal. Special thanks this episode to Major Joe Womack for all of his expertise and an excellent interview partner. I'm Kate Lyon O'Neill. I recorded, edited, and hosted this episode. Music this episode was from Papita and Suffering Praying Hands.